Sometimes, the solution to nutritional deficiencies doesn't have to be complicated. Milk contains 15 essential nutrients that can play a role in the prevention of chronic diseases, from heart attack and hypertension to type 2 diabetes, even some types of cancer. It's a simple prescription for prevention rooted in evidence and proven over time. So maybe it's time to rethink milk. Simple, healthy. That's the science of milk. Hi, I'm Mojala Mali. I'm Blair Bigham. This is the CMAJ Podcast. So today we are talking about polyneuropathy. I'm the first to have to admit that I had to Google what exactly polyneuropathy was because I was like, what is this word? I know neuropathy. I know what poly is, but I'd never seen them put together. So after I Googled and then I read the article, it was really interesting because this is a very common complaint that even I have noticed that patients do talk about in terms of their symptomology. And so this paper really tried to help family physicians and clinicians have an algorithm when a patient comes in with distal symmetrical polyneuropathy. And it talks about diagnosis, things to rule out, such as red flags, and then what are some of the treatment options and just some caution around, you know, what expectations around treatment is. And then also when to refer on to neurologists, especially when there's no red flags. I think what was really important uh, that I liked in the article is that it talked about some of the, not necessarily controversial, but there's no consensus around some of the studies that could be done for diagnosis. So I thought that was really helpful. Blair, um, you didn't want to talk about this episode. Tell me why. I have vivid nightmares preparing for my Royal College exam of trying to memorize the polyneuropathy chapter of Rosen's Emergency Medicine. It's... Wow. It's pretty complicated. Like there's so many boxes. Like there's this like algorithm which goes and I think there's six different types and they all have these weird acronyms that are similar and there's peripheral and symmetrical and asymmetrical and it just gets a little bit overwhelming. And I feel like in the emergency department, um, I don't even know how to order, you know, the testing. Like, I don't think I can get nerve conduction studies. I don't think I can get EMGs. It takes three months for a neurologist to see a patient I refer. So I just feel like this is a very frustrating box for a lot of clinicians. The differential is kind of complicated. The workup is kind of difficult to access. And the specialists are also, um, in many places, difficult to access. So I, I kind of did not want to do this topic as an episode. And our, our podcast producer, Neil, thankfully said, well, wait a minute. Isn't that a great reason to do it? And I kind of went, well... I don't know. I still don't want to do it. Uh, so I was I was very hesitant. Um, but I have been convinced that we will talk to an expert on this topic and see if we can make it make sense for people who encounter this um, in the office or in the emergency department or in the internal medicine clinic. So Blair, I'm going to be your polyneuropathy Sherpa. And I'm going to take <laughs> you through this journey. All right. The person who is going to make polyneuropathy less overwhelming for us, I hope, <laughs> is Dr. Ariel Marion. 
Dr. Murian is a fifth-year neurology resident at the University of Western Ontario's Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry and is on his way to Boston this summer for a neuromuscular fellowship. He's a lead author on the review article in CMAJ entitled Diagnosis and Management of Patients with Polyneuropathy. Ario, thanks for joining us. And just a heads up, we have a big ask of you today. Help us understand polyneuropathy. Thank you guys for having me. So earlier, Ario, I was talking about how polyneuropathy is like my nightmare exam question. I have all this stress that I remember from my fifth year of residency getting ready for my Royal College exam. There's tables. The tables are like some of the ugliest tables in the textbook. Polyneuropathy, for people who don't see it every day, can feel a little overwhelming. Tell us, why is that the case? What makes this so challenging? Well, I think first of all, when patients typically present with polyneuropathy, sometimes their symptoms can be vague. They can have pins and needles, paresthesias, weakness, and it can start very insidiously, but is ultimately for most patients progressive. And so sometimes the clinical symptoms aren't easily elicitable. I think the next biggest challenge is identifying what signs on the exam are consistent with polyneuropathy. And then the next step is what to do with that. So what investigations to send off, what are tests that are high yield for a patient presenting with polyneuropathy, and also when to be worried. So a lot of these symptoms overlap. They're may not be clear understanding of when more urgent uh, management is necessary. So I think all those things combined make it a pretty challenging clinical scenario, especially on first encounter with these patients. What motivated you to write this practice summary for people? What were you seeing in clinic that made you say, oh man, we got to do this? Well, I think as a neurology resident going through the approach to polyneuropathy is very daunting. And there's so many etiologies, there's so much different algorithms and workup that you can do that it's hard to kind of make sense of what's a practical approach. So I think that was a motivating factor. And then another personal story is that my wife is a family practitioner. She has many colleagues, of course, that practice family medicine. And we were having dinner and they were ranting to me about uh, how confusing <laughs> it is, how they don't know what to order, <laughs> when should they be worried. And so it all lended to kind of a good, potentially good review article that I could touch on those things. So are you, I have to admit that I had to Google what polyneuropathy is. So my understanding is from Wikipedia. So can you explain, just give like the surgeon's primer to what a polyneuropathy yeah, is? Yeah, polyneuropathy really refers to simultaneous involvement of multiple peripheral nerves. So that's really at the core of what a polyneuropathy is, but there are different types of polyneuropathy, which I think confuse the matter. The one that we focused on in the, in the review article is the most common. And so that's referred to as distal symmetric polyneuropathy. And for those phenotypes or presentations, that's when symptoms and signs occur most distally. So the bottom of the feet, they progress proximally, and they're usually sensory predominant. So the sensory symptoms are way more than the, the motor symptoms and signs. And so what is the impact of polyneuropathy in patients? It could be quite significant. So because it's such a broad condition with different causes, I'll start with the most common for distal symmetric polyneuropathy. I think many of us have encountered patients with diabetes, as, and that's the most common cause of a distal symmetric polyneuropathy. And it can have a pretty significant impact on quality of life 
mainly with neuropathic pain. But if it progresses enough, there can be impairments in walking and distal motor function in those patients. And then you have a whole subset of other patients that have more uncommon causes of polyneuropathy, whether that's vasculitis or malignancy. And that comes with a whole whole other host of debilitating symptoms. So let's start with the common stuff like the distal symmetrical polyneuropathies. What are some of the main takeaways that people need to be reassured that they're not missing something more serious? Like are there red flags that would guide you away from one of those more, I'll use the term benign, maybe that's not the right word, diagnoses? So initially patients really should have a symmetric, slowly progressive, sensory predominant symptoms. So that could be pins and needles, loss of sensation, burning pain, starting in the toes, and that gradually moves up proximally. We say it's length dependent because it starts in the longest nerves first, which are in our legs. And then by the time it gets to the knees, we expect that the fingertips become involved in terms of symptoms because the nerve lengths are equivalent roughly at that point. And then following that or roughly around that stage, you expect some weakness in the toe and then in the ankle. So it's a symmetric, really slowly progressive process that begins in the legs, moves proximally, and then by the time it hits close to the knees, it starts to affect the hands. So that kind of captures most or the phenotype of distal symmetric polyneuropathy, which kind of helps recognize times that are inconsistent with that or may point to red flags for etiologies that need more urgent assessment. So any process that is very asymmetric would be inconsistent with a distal symmetric polyneuropathy. So that would be a red flag. That would be a red flag. Symptoms and signs that are occurring quickly, so things are occurring very quickly, is less than eight weeks. That's generally a good timeline to suggest that this is not slowly progressive. This is, in fact, a subacute process, and that hints to inflammatory causes or other more uncommon causes of a neuropathy. And those associated with pain. So so patient may present with a wrist drop and then subsequently a foot drop. So it's an asymmetric process that is happening acutely in terms of nerve involvement. And that would be another major red flag. The last point that we made in the article was systemic signs that accompany the neuropathy. And that can be a bit tricky, but ultimately any constitutional symptoms that are new with polyneuropathy should be a red flag as well. So I have two questions. The first is, what studies can sort of confirm your diagnosis of a more benign process like a symmetrical polyneuropathy that's flow onset and distal? Uh, and when would you bother to order them? Is there any yield in doing that, say, in someone who has well, well-known, well poorly controlled diabetes? Yeah. So I guess I'll start with what tests to order for a patient presenting with distal symmetric polyneuropathy without red flags. There's consensus in the literature in terms of what exactly to test, but high yield tests for any patient would include CBC, liver function, and particularly vitamin B12 levels and serum protein electrophoresis. So the last two are considered high yield and treatable in terms of potential causes for the polyneuropathy. So I don't think um, I've ever ordered serum plasmapheresis. What yeah. are you looking for on that? 
So what you'd most commonly would anticipate to see is you could see IgG or IgA elevation. And that's really common with an axonal polyneuropathy. So again, a distal symmetric polyneuropathy that is has axonal impairment that you find on studies. So it's just a very common association. However, there are circumstances where patients may have an underlying hematologic malignancy that has a neuropathy as a consequence, and so becomes an etiology you don't want to miss when evaluating patients with distal symmetric polyneuropathy, because it can behave and look very similar to someone that has, for instance, either B12 as a cause or another diabetic polyneuropathy. When are you doing additional tests on an urgent basis for like um, a nerve conduction study or an EMG or something like that? So those red flags that I mentioned would warrant urgent nerve conduction studies in EMG. So asymmetry, rapid progression, systemic signs, painful neuropathy, and the other situation would be a traumatic cause. But I would say if someone presents with a distal symmetric polyneuropathy and you're following them and it's progressive and you're seeing motor impairments, that would be an easy indication to have them have studies. It's not only would you want diagnostic confirmation, but you would want the studies to see if they could identify any pattern that may suggest a treatable cause outside of the ones that we discuss as first line. A lot of the time when we talk about this, it's hard for me to find tangible. Can you tell me a story about a great catch that you had where you found a disease quickly that affected management for someone? Or maybe you can describe a case where something was sort of a delayed diagnosis and it was picked up finally and you were able to really help someone uh, improve. Yeah, I think some of the more common situations in a neuromuscular clinic may be that They were having neuropathic symptoms that suggested a polyneuropathy, both in the hands and feet. It seemed length-dependent, and there were some signs on exam that were consistent with that diagnosis. But it was through kind of evaluating what medications they were on, and in this case, herbal supplements, one of which included a lot of vitamin B6, and they were toxic on that, and that was likely the culprit of their polyneuropathy was a good example of just having, yeah, having an approach to the potential causes and just keeping an eye on medications or other reversible etiologies for this condition. What are other like common drugs and even supplements that would be a risk factor for developing polyneuropathy? So in terms of supplements, vitamin B6 toxicity or over-supplementation is going to be a common culprit. And That can result in different types of polyneuropathies, but polyneuropathy overall. And then outside of chemotherapy, things like metronidazole, phenytoin, linozolide, even nitrofurantin can do it. So there's a whole relatively long list. And if you look it up, it's overwhelmingly long. But in the article, we listed at least some of the more commonly used medications that could result in a polyneuropathy. Just one thing that's noteworthy as well is that alcohol is a very common cause Mm. of polyneuropathy, right? So that's another important thing to screen for because that could yield at least an etiology that is not reversible in most circumstances, but at least you could stop the worsening. If you have a distal polyneuropathy and you're pretty confident that you've got this sort of symmetrical presentation, you're ready to call it, at what point would you start therapies for that? And what's available to help people suffering from that? In terms of therapies overall, 
part of the first line testing is to identify something that you could at least treat. And for the most part, patients may have slow improvement. So in the case of vitamin B12 deficiency, those are things that can often help with the symptoms and then help with perhaps a slow improvement. For polyneuropathy as a whole, directed treatment at the nerves and not at the underlying etiology, there's really nothing specifically. So we have mainly symptomatic therapy. What are some of the options for people who are suffering from pain, say from diabetic neuropathy? I see a lot of people on gabapentin. I see a lot of people on Lyrica. There's a big debate in the emergency department about whether or not emergency doctors should be using these types of medications for this sort of chronic nerve pain. What's your take on that? So overall, first-line therapy can be divided into gabapentinoids, like you mentioned, SNRIs, sodium channel blockers like valproic acid or lamotrigine. And for the most part, those are equivalent. So the guideline hmm. indicates that these are equivalent options and that to align a patient's expectation for what is the anticipated benefit, they've highlighted a reduction in pain of roughly 30%. And roughly 40 or 50% of patients may get to that type of pain reduction. So I assume that there's a bit of communication there with patients so that you set their expectations. Is there some additional hope there if, let's say, between the two of you, you were able to get better control of their diabetes? Can these symptoms get better with controlling the underlying condition? Or is it like you're just going to have to live with this and maybe some people will have some improvement? Yeah, it does become a matter of reducing the pain as much as possible. And some of these medications, as you know, come with side effect profile that isn't easy to tolerate. So you want to get them on a regimen that works for them that maximizes quality of life. But for the majority of patients, they're not going to have complete remission of their neuropathic symptoms. And so saying that up front and giving that as an expectation, I think is helpful while you kind of think of other potential contributors to their pain perception. So mood and OSA and stuff like that. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back with Dr. Arya Miran. Come practice family medicine in rural Alberta and receive incentives of up to $120,000. Enjoy lower house prices and abundant outdoor experiences. It's called the Reside Program. If you're a family physician who has been in practice for five years or less, see if you qualify for the Reside Program. Go to rpap.ca slash reside. That's r-h-p-a-p dot c-a forward slash r-e-s-i-d-e. That's r-h-p-a-p dot c-a forward slash reside. Can we just kind of recap? So, you know, someone comes into the family physician's office and is complaining of distal polyneuropathy in their feet. You've ruled out all of the causes from medication, supplements. There's no red flags. Um, no, it's not a quick progression under eight weeks. I feel like I'm going to test from this. <laughs> this is an oral board, Jola. Um, I'm like, I was like, there's no red flags. There's no constitutional symptoms. It is symmetrical on both sides. Did I miss anything in the red flags? No, no I think that's pretty anything. good. Non-painful. You get to yeah. keep your okay, scalpel. And then <laughs> yeah. no one could ever take, you can pry from <laughs> dead hands. And then you order a CBC and then something funky called a serum electrophoresis. Yep. You serum got it. Yeah. Yep. Not necessarily that we have to order an EMG. Not right? It's not completely agreed upon to whether to order studies for every patient. 
but it would be reasonable to have them completed for di like diagnostic confirmation. Yeah. Okay. So I decide to put yeah. one in. And then the next step is we get our results back and it's da-da, polyneuropathy that is symmetrical and is distal. So we talk to them that there's only going to be a 30% improvement with medication. Medication options are calcium channel blockers, as you said. That's literally all I remember. Oh, and then the gab gabapentanoids, and that's it? Yeah, you have four categories for first-line options. It would be the gabapentanoids, like gabapentin and pregabalin, tricyclic antidepressants, like amitriptyline. And Love this. <laughs> I give them to patients for abdominal pain. <laughs> and then SNRIs, and then I said voltage-gated sodium blockers, which is valproic acid, lamotrigine, and those are less commonly used. Most people are going to use gabapentin, pregabalin, amitriptyline for these patients. So after, so, you know, I, as a great family doctor, do this. Outside of the red flags, when should I refer it to you? Yeah, that's a good question. So part of that would be whether either on the referring physician's end or the patient's end, how much they would value diagnostic confirmation of the clinical diagnosis. Knowing that nerve conduction studies are not perfect tests, they're not perfectly sensitive. So there are patients that can have mild symptoms in a normal nerve conduction study. So it doesn't completely rule out that diagnosis. So one would be if diagnostic confirmation is, is the objective. The second thing would be if the symptoms are progressive enough that are resulting in disability despite, let's say, no red flags, and it's still gradually progressive, I think that's a very reasonable time to then refer to anyone practicing neuromuscular medicine to have those studies done in that circumstance. So not necessarily all patients, but we'd argue that a good subset of patients should would be reasonable to have studies for. Ario, I think we're going to cut it off there. Thank okay. you so much for joining us. That was super helpful. I am okay, slightly I less so. panicked now about having to be able I to... Think, did I, I think I did a good recap. I think yeah. I could pass like yeah. a, some sort of board exam. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully I answered the questions with uh, did. I some learned. sort of clarity around the topic. I know it's there's a lot of grays in it, so I think that makes it a bit challenging. Well, I think what I learned is like, what I've learned so far in neurology is that you guys don't really go for cure, you just go for better and better for you. It's like, because we did our migraine, it was the same thing. They're like, you know, people just have like only a few headaches a week. I'm like, what? Yeah. That's how. Yeah, like I would say... Vast, yeah, you're right. Vast majority of neurological conditions, like complete remission is very hard to find. Like it's mainly about symptomatic mm -hmm. control or slowing progression, stuff like that. Yeah. And prevention, I guess, at the end of the day, if once you have your peripheral neuropathy because you never had good access to insulin therapy, you never had good access to all those things that keep diabetes at bay, it really is sort of a sad, permanent development. Yeah, no, totally. It's so interesting. Yeah. Mario, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Dr. Ario Mirian is a fifth-year neurology resident at Western University. So, Blair, we just finished talking to Ario. How are you feeling now about the topic? And also well, as me being your Sherpa. I'm a little embarrassed because you just totally rocked the oral board question and I still don't Thank know you. that I could. Um, I guess in some ways, uh, this has been a helpful exercise for me. Uh, 
distal symmetrical polyneuropathy, like that is its own entity. That is something that a lot of people suffer from. We see those people, whether you're a surgeon, an emergency doctor, a family doctor, a rheumatologist, a neurologist, you're seeing those patients because that is a chronic disease that isn't getting any better. And so I think that the framework around that, you know, thinking about, you know, B6 toxicity and chemotherapy and really impressing upon how important diabetes glycemic control is, these types of things I think are, are a nice foundation for me to, uh, to build on. I'm still, though, a little bit nervous about those people with red flags, with asymmetric presentations. Sorry, why? If it's a, if it is a red flag, refer them. Well, yeah. So if it's a red flag, you just call a neurologist, but it's not easy just to get neurology access. I work in a really large hospital. We don't have neurology after 4 p.m. We can't even call them. And referrals can take many weeks or months to be seen. Um, so I just feel like there's still sort of this void where primary care practitioners, family doctors, emergency doctors, are left trying to scramble to do a bit of a workup so that by the time they get to the neurologist, they can hopefully arrive at a diagnosis and and hopefully start some therapy. I guess to me, that's a systems issue, right? If yeah, there's totally. no access to an urgent neurology consult um, after hours, even if it's for the next day, that there's a clinic, that like a rapid assessment clinic that they could be seen at the next day. I feel better. I kind of know what it is now. Well, now we know more about distal symmetrical polyneuropathy, but there's just so many polyneuropathies. Well, you know what? We start one poly at a time. (laughs) It's like a polyamorous relationship. Thanks, polyneuropathy, Sherpa. (laughs) You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this week on the CMAJ podcast. Please remember to like and share our podcast wherever it is you download your audio. It goes a long way to helping us engage people and get the message out. I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Mojala Mali. Until next time, be well.